The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, November 29th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Whenever we used to talk about palace intrigue in a U.S. political context, there might have been some intrigue, but there was never an actual palace. Now Donald Trump gives us both. And without getting into all the sniping or the reported sniping between the president-elect, Kellyanne Conway, sources said to be familiar with Donald Trump's thinking, yeah, because that's a thing that's set in place, Um, a burnt American flag. Without getting into all that, I just want to point out what a great favor that one of our most learned public intellectuals has given Trump. The person I'm thinking of is Doris Kearns Goodwin, and she has provided the phrase that has become the mental framework for Trump's transition. Romney said the fact he's even talking to me shows that he's ripping a page from team of rivals in Lincoln. Maybe Trump is is trying to replicate in the White House this team of rivals concept he often uses in his private business. Morning, Joe. Paul Jago elevating what's going on with Trump to the team of rivals. It's a team of rivals. Lincoln's cabinet, Trump's cabinet. Without team of rivals, think of the phrases that we may be using to describe the Trump transition and the nascent cabinet. Snake pit. No, it's team of rivals. Rat's nest. Nope, team of rivals. Can of worms. Team of rivals. Oh, remember that team of rivals among the real housewives of Atlanta when Portia attacked Kenya? That was so team of rivals. I could go on forever about how Lincoln and the real team of rivals were just the total opposite of Trump's team and the transition. For one thing, the leading cabinet members with Lincoln were all in the forefront of abolitionism. And even if some, like Edward Bates, were not what you'd call racially progressive, they were against slavery, which marks them judged against the time as at the vanguard. Seward, Bates, and Chase, the three main cabinet officials, were the leading lights of the Republican Party. They ran against Lincoln, right? So this is not a team of rivals. Then he'd be picking low-energy Jeb and little Marco and Lion Ted. That would be his team of rivals if that was the template. And the next level of Lincoln's cabinet were former Democrats. And in fact, Seward was a Whig until there ceased to be Whigs. The analogy from Lincoln to Trump's cabinet is preposterous. And it's not because Lincoln's cabinet or the transition was so smooth. There was indeed a lot of cajoling to construct that cabinet. But the fact is this phrase, team of rivals, unmoored from its context, serves to ridiculously elevate this slapdash team of cast-off and radicals that Trump is assembling. Remember the subtitle of Doris Kearns Goodwin's work? It was Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. The subtitle of Trump's cabinet is yet to be written, but with Jeff Sessions, Steve Bannon, and Betsy DeVos among the picks, the word genius seems a stretch. On the show today, well, you know that I do not use the gist as simply a means to regurgitate the day's news. But when it comes to every bit of food I attempted to consume yesterday... Let's just say the verb applies. Simple rule, if all through the night you spew, the next day you cannot spiel. Instead, I will give you two interviews from two opposite political perspectives. I will heal up and be back with you tomorrow. But now let's hear from Ray Zaborny. He's a political consultant. He's run Republican campaigns in 27 states. He is a Trump backer. But my first guest, Thomas Frank, is decidedly not.
populism is one of those phrases like American exceptionalism that are hard to define. We know what it's not, but what is it? Well, we know populism is having its moment on left and right, and there's really no one who's a greater expert on perhaps defining this or uh, being imbued by it than Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank is a longtime editor of The Baffler, and his latest book is Listen, Liberal. If we weren't then, I think we all should be now. Hi, how are you? I am doing just great. And yourself? I'm well. Thank you for asking. So do you have a definition that you use? Do you think it's a useful word, populism? Vox populi, vox dei, dude. I would say one of the the most uh, sort of enduring characteristics of it is its hostility to elites, to what it isn't. Uh, So it's it's always this sort of understanding of the average people beset by um by elites so in addition to you pointing the finger uh as the cover of your book depicts and saying listen liberal there are a lot of other people saying listen liberal bernie sanders said it mark lilla writing in the new york times who's a professor of the humanities at columbia echoed what bernie's prescription was the end of identity liberalism the idea that you have to be more populist, let's say, or more talking about economic measures and less uh, celebrating different camps and an us against them this. So my question is, is identity liberalism the uh, antithesis of your prescriptions for the Democratic Party? No, I'm not as harsh about it as uh, as these other guys. Um, I think it only gets in the, in the way if people want to want it to get in the way. So you don't, don't think it's either or, either identity no, liberalism or economic not. liberalism? Ab- yeah. No, I, no, I don't think so. I think that they can cohabit totally peacefully. I mean, they better be able to because that's that's the only way out of this situation. So, yeah. you know, I hope they can. And I'd also add that uh, if you want to have politics without identity, that's not politics. All politics are identity <laughs> politics. Yeah. Well, it would, yeah, it would be, it would be a little strange. So what, what I do in Listen Liberal is, is, is different than what you just described. I I looked at I look at the Democrats as a kind of 19th century class party that they are a party that's that's dominated by a particular social cohort that has uh, you know in, that identifies itself with this group uh, that takes this group's economic agenda as being natural and normal and sensible and reasonable and everybody else in the party is basically uh, sits in in the back. Mm-hmm. They get to demand things, but it's not clear whether they'll, you know, whether they get any of those things or anything like that. But so the 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 class in question, you know, most people would say the Democrats. That's the party of the working class. But uh, what you find when you start digging is that that's not the case at all. The, the the class that the Democratic Party really cares about is the professional class, the sort of white uh, collar. Uh, suburban liberals, as they used to call them in the McGovern days, and that's that's the group whose uh, sort of worldview Democrats take as being natural and normal. And uh, this is, of course, yeah, and proper and borne out by empiricism, and all evidence points to that's the right way to look at the world. Exactly. Yep. Yes. Yeah. It's 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 sort of classic uh, the definition of ideology. Well, you know, where you take your your subjective interests and present them as you know the obvious you know way to go for everyone. Um, but this the, the 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 point that you quickly realize is that this is a, a form of this is a liberalism of the rich that this is a form of liberalism that appeals to a certain slice of very affluent people it's not the Koch brothers it's not the one percent but it is nevertheless a uh, the, like the upper ten percent or mm-hmm. so something like that I guess my problem is I am in that class and I also well think, hey me yeah, me too yeah so <laughs> but but you're from Kansas and I guess I am literally from a suburban white collar although half my suburb that I grew up in wasn't white collar but here's 
uh, empirically what I think about the way to grow the economy and get people richer. So most of the gains economically, uh, our, our economy needs economic gains. They need productivity gains to grow the economy. Um, and that will come from probably technology and things like the internet, or at least smart people who maybe, God forbid, went to college. But then the trick is to distribute that evenly so workers who might not have a college education uh, can get some of the gains. So it's, it's two-part. But do you see it that way? Or can we just get productivity based on, you know, coal mines and the old magazine? Uh, manufacturing jobs well the, uh, the technical definition of, of productivity is is worker efficiency yes people invent stuff all the time but it's the the workers who actually use the stuff who actually use the machines and do the work and and that sort of thing are the ones who are officially credited with the productivity gains the the, the problem is that they don't Nowadays, anyway, they don't see the benefit of those of gains in productivity. That all the gains go to uh, you know shareholders and people like that. So, if that's the case, that it will be driven by the people who the Democrats define as you know the cla- the de facto wise. Well, but class, I, I don't yeah. think it's wait, it's not necessarily driven driven by them. That's it's it's not. It's technically not driven by them. I mean, you can say that every wonderful thing that workers do is in fact just the reflection of some Promethean entrepreneur somewhere who, you know, who's, who's not being acknowledged fairly. And I just don't think that's right. So one of the uh, autopsies of everything that went wrong for Hillary Clinton was that she didn't have a good economic message to communicate to the white working class message, message communication. Uh, it sounds like you're saying that it's not that she didn't have a good message, she actually doesn't have good policies, or that's what got in the way of the good message. This one is, this one is, is tough because on paper she did have a uh, – she had a lot of good ideas. Yeah. And a lot of it is messaging. You know, a lot of it. So I was at the Democratic convention and her appeal to working people was one of the feeblest I've ever seen. I remember in her speech, you know, I was waiting for her to say, because this is obviously the issue, right? This is obviously the swing uh, group this year is yep. where everyone was writing about it. Everyone could see it coming. I myself, I don't know how many essays I wrote about this, right? But yeah. everyone could see this coming. And here she is in her speech, her acceptance speech at the Democratic convention. It's her moment to say, we're reaching out to uh, working people. And she said, uh, she said, you know, we're also we Democrats, we're also the party of labor. And and then and then she, you know, she set herself up to make her big offer uh, to working people. And you know what it was? She was going to overturn Citizens United. (laughs) (laughs) What? I mean, that's something I believe in. I agree with. But that's like that that has nothing to do with these with what these people's concerns are. And then somewhat of a tertiary abstraction for the former (laughs) manufacturing sector worker. I'm glad you mentioned labor. The whole subtitle, whatever happened to the party of the people. It's a complicated answer. Yet, in some ways, the Occam's razor is unions, isn't it? I mean, there used to be what could what? What uh, programs can Democrats have? How do they communicate? You know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, the answer was simple. Unions. Yep, that's right. That's right. And this is why, I mean, there are so, you look back now with the benefit of hindsight at the things that Obama did or didn't do that have allowed this debacle to happen. And one of them is, do you remember card check? Yeah. The unions came to him after they did, after they worked so hard in 2008 
uh, you know, to get him elected and poured all that money into his campaign. And they come to him and it's like, they, you know, we've got our one thing that we want and it's card check or some, you know, some compromise on this. But we need something to make it easier to form a union in America. And he, he just let it go. He let it die. He did not put any effort into getting that passed. And I think that has come back to haunt him in a big way. But even worse, even worse is NAFTA. The original, in the minds of a lot of these people, the original sin, you know, this is where the Democratic Party or the leadership of the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party just ran a steamroller over organized labor. And again, right after a national election, right after unions had worked hard to get Bill Clinton elected president. And then he he did that to them. And I, you know, I speak to union audiences in, uh, well, all over the country, but especially in the Midwest. And they are still bitter about that. They are still pissed off about that. And in some ways, when Trump chose to make that, to make trade, his signature concern, his signature issue, he was hitting right at the sort of weak spot in the, uh, you know, in the, in the Democratic Party. And Hillary Clinton was uniquely vulnerable on this, both because of her husband, what he did, and also because of her own, you know, what she did as Secretary of State. You know, and she was like, well, I've changed my mind about NAFTA. I've changed my mind about the TPP. Nothing she could say would uh, persuade people that she was sincere. So, listen, liberal basically uh, starts with the Democratic Party after the 68 election, after that debacle. You know, you go down the list of Democratic debacles, and after that debacle in 68, they – basically decided that they didn't want to be the party of organized labor any longer, and they took these various steps to remove organized labor from its uh, structural position within the party. And that, you can understand why they did that. You know, you, you put yourself in that climate in the late 60s, early 70s, organized labor didn't look so good. You know, they were supporting the Vietnam War. You know, these are big top heavy organizations that were not particularly democratic. Yep. A lot of them were mobbed up. Uh, yep. A lot of them were racist. It was not, you know, they didn't look that great, but uh, it was also, you know, they also couldn't foresee what has since happened, uh, you know, with inequality and with the, you know, the way that the democratic party has uh, way, the way history has unfolded. And so what seemed probably seemed like a wise move at the time has turned out to be catastrophic for these guys. So if in What's the Matter with Kansas, we have a whole bunch of people who were distracted by the culture wars and really made electoral mistakes, voted dumb because of that. And then if in this last election, we have a bunch of white working class people who used to be well served by unions and aren't and don't recognize it was the Republican Party that gutted those unions or, you know, were, were more the driving force than Democrats behind trade deals. Do you just resolve yourself to the fact that, you know, people in general, American voters aren't going to become more enlightened over time you just have to fight you just have to fight uh given the given the given the state of things as they really are not as you'd like them to be i think if democrats and don't get me wrong here they have got a very long uphill path democrats are in worse condition than i've they've ever been in my lifetime but if they can remove themselves from their kind of professional class bubble there are all sorts of ways in which you can still talk to people. But I, here's where I'm going to get uh, – I will uh, accept your pessimism. I don't think the Democratic Party is going to do those things. Mm-hmm. I think the sort of professional class leadership of that party is not simply going to give up on what they've got. They're not just going to you know, uh, uh, say, OK, uh, forget it. 
you know, we, 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 we are completely changing our, our tune on Wall Street and big pharma and trade deals you know, right down the list. There's no way in hell they're going to do that. Th- that's where the money is. Uh, that's who they are. That's what is essential to them. And they've got a whole chorus of people that are going to tell them they don't need to do that, that the demographics are all on their side and all they have to do is wait. And I think that that's probably the path that they will choose to take is, is, is wait. Wait for Trump to screw it up. Thomas Frank is a columnist for Harper's. He's written What's the Matter with Kansas? And his latest book is Listen Liberal. They weren't on November 7th. Maybe they are now. Thank you, Mr. Frank. It's my pleasure. Ray Zaborny is the founder and president of Red Maverick Media. They are political consultants. They work in 23 states. Ray lives in Pennsylvania. And I found out about Ray when, uh, soon after Election Day, I noted where the Democrats were strong and where the Democrats were weak. And I tweeted out something like, we have got to get these white men a college education, noting that uncollege educated white men broke hard for Donald Trump. I believe Ray called me something akin to an asshole. But then a dialogue ensued and we at least decided to talk about what happened in the election and what is uh, going to happen going forward. Hey, Ray, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on, Mike. And, uh, you know, it's easy to call somebody that on the Twitter sphere. Because you Uh-oh. looked at you looked at my tweet and it could be interpreted that I was saying something like uh, only dummies voted for Trump. But you got it. Perhaps yeah. perhaps I was not letting that implication go uncorrected. But what I was saying, if uh, Democrats want to win, given uh, what we saw from the exit polls, the key was uh, doing better with uneducated whites. And so maybe to educate the whites with college would be one way to go about that. Yeah, well, I'm not in the given Democrats' advice, but yeah. uh, if I was going to give it to them, I would say that uh, one of the challenges I think they're confronting now, and look, Republicans went through it um, in 2008 a bit as well, is we probably have to stop it, or they probably need to stop insulting the people who decided the election. Look, Trump did better across almost every demographic than what I think people predicted. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, you know, uh, whites without a college education was an area where you know, he overperformed from where Romney was and from where other uh, candidates were. Your point is a loss that Democrats need to find a way to do better. My advice to them would be to stop insulting them to start and then move on from there and talk about policies that actually help them. Yes. Uh, a very wise political consultant said of Hillary Clinton, people aren't going to vote for you if they think that you don't like them. And uh, right. perhaps she gave off that vibe. <laughs> I, I think she did. I, look, I think she had a lot of problems, but I think in a year like this, dynasties were going to be hard to triumph. I'll give Donald Trump credit. I did not see it coming that he would defeat the Bush dynasty and the Clinton dynasty all in one year, something that no one else has ever done. But clearly, he is a pretty good marketer, and he knew exactly what he had to say and who he had to say it to. What is it, if we were to look at the issue of uh, college education, what Mm -hmm. is it about not being college educated that you think attracted people to Trump? It could be a a number of things. One, without a college education, your economic prospects are worse. So it could be just a proxy for economic condition. Or it could be cultural. I mean, I know a lot of Republicans or a lot of conservatives look at college as, yeah, you needed to get a good job, but the stuff you learn just muddies your head with nonsense and kind of separates you from (laughs) common sense. So what do you think it is? By and large, what I think it is more about is about economics and people at the lower end of the economic scale feel like the system is tilted against them. 
Hillary Clinton tried to make that case, but it was hard for her to make it, given that Democrats had been in charge of the system for the last eight years. Trump was, when he talked about the system being rigged, ironically, he was able to actually strengthen his case by saying things like, you know, my, when he took advantage of the tax laws, and when I say take advantage, I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, you know, legally, that that hurt working class people. He was able to actually parlay something that should have been devastating for him into something that voters said, yeah, he's right. Like, we, we can't have people doing that, and he's going to stop them from doing it because he knows what it's like. So I think it's more about economic system, and Trump was more credible on the, the system is rigged and I'm going to fix it. Well, Hillary Clinton tried to make that case, but she is the system. You know, she's been around for 30 years. At least that's what voters felt. And how is she going to fix a system that she's, quite frankly, thrived in? Right. So so when, you know, they would often say, how do you trust them with the nuclear codes? And what about getting into international conflicts? Is the distinction you're making, that's not the interest, that's an abstraction and not the interest of the average voter, the average Pennsylvania? I think the average voter doesn't think the Republican nominee for president wants to blow up the world. You know, I think they tried to run it like it was 1964. And, oh, my God, here's Barry Goldwater. He'll blow up the whole world. Well, Barry Goldwater hadn't had a record of growing a business, working in other countries, doing all the stuff that Trump had to kind of push back against this. I had a lot of conservatives on the show, though not a lot of Trump fans, and they would say, they would acknowledge, or especially afterwards, Trump did connect with the people he needed to connect with uh, on economic issues, but they would dispute what his solutions were. So they would say, fine, he's speak in their language, but his prescription is a 45% tariff and a trade war with China. Uh, where do you stand on those issues, and did that bother you? I think that a lot of this stuff will get worked out. I think probably the Donald Trump who's president will be slightly more pragmatic than the Donald Trump as a candidate. Um, in this instance, on some of the more unorthodox things, Republicans in Congress will be a check. That being said, I think Republicans in Congress will move along with him. I mean, I think you'll see strength in trade deals that aren't one-sided or mostly one-sided. I think you'll see tax reform that does deal with the corporate side, not just the personal rates. Well, I asked about the 45% tariff because there was so much to pay attention to, I guess, that grabbed your attention, that that would grab one's attention. But we started by talking about the idea of the college-educated person, which is what I am. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I knew that these were his proposals. I know you are. I I knew that... I voted for Trump, though. (laughs) I know you did. (laughs) But I knew that these were his proposals. I knew that they would be, in my estimation, the vast majority of economists saying disastrous proposals. And therefore, Mm -hmm. I made a calculation wow, we should keep the guy favoring those proposals out of the White House. Now, this mm-hmm. might be an instance of uh, what the what a writer who you quoted, a Pennsylvania writer, what's her name, Selena Zito, uh, mm-hmm. has said that we in the media took Trump literally but not seriously. But how can right. I fault myself for that? Like, he had proposals. Some of his proposals maybe seemed hyperbolic. These seemed like his. they were his proposals. And I said, these are bad proposals. What did I do wrong? Forget as a talk show host. But just as a voter in saying terrible proposals, let's not vote for the guy. I'm not saying that he's, and I don't, Selena's a very smart, very good writer. I, I read most of her work, but her quote almost makes it sound like he was insincere in mm-hmm. some of this. I'm not sure that he's insincere. I think he thinks some of these things would help level the playing field between us and other countries. If I were analyzing you in an exit poll, you clearly, or a therapist couch. <laughs> you clearly were comfortable with the direction of the country. That is true. And therefore, any proposal that, you know, wildly veered off the direction of the country was unnecessary in your mind and, and to your point, dangerous. Possibly harmful. Yeah. 
Whereas there's a, you got to remember these people that we're talking about who helped Trump, what these people feel like is the system that's in place is unfair to them. So radical proposals that went away from this didn't worry them. I got to tell you, I'm from Shemokin, Pennsylvania. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a little town, coal town, been decimated by the economy because when uh, coal left, so did most of the jobs. And nothing's ever really replaced it. And those people feel like the system didn't do much to help them and that it's rigged. I'm not sure what Trump got there, but I'm willing to bet he got, you know, 70 percent of the vote. So in three years, paint a picture of what you think Shemokin might look like when he's uh, running for re-election, three and a half years. I think that there could be a vibrant energy sector up there. There could be a vibrant manufacturing sector up there. Clearly, we're not going to manufacture things the way we used to but I think there is certainly room for that. And I think some of that has to do with the corporate tax rates if he's successful in bringing down so that you stop people from offshoring their profits and their revenues. As anywhere, as you bring taxes down, there's always the hope that it'll lead to economic investment. And if there is economic investment, that'll be good for there as well. So um, do I think it'll be 180 degrees different than it is now? And it'll be back to where it was in the you know, 70s? Probably not. But do I think it'll be better off? Yeah, I do. And, and, you know, they would love to see some progress. You've read a lot about places like Shemokin and Johnstown and uh, cities like that who are starving to see some progress because all they've seen is they've fallen further and further behind. So, look, I'm optimistic. I also think Trump will be pragmatic. I think he'll work with both parties. You know, there's a lot of counseling sessions going on right now. <laughs> yeah. I truly, I read an interesting article the other day by Dan Balls from the Washington Post who talked about how Trump is really the first independent president we've ever had in that he's willing to stray from the hard orthodoxy of either party. And if he carries that into governing, well, look, we're going to have Republicans who are upset with him sometimes, and we're going to have Democrats who are upset with him sometimes. Ray Zaborny, founder and president of Red Maverick Media, Pennsylvania-based political consultant. And if nothing else, let this conversation stand as testament to the fact that maybe the best chats aren't had via 140 characters. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, think, Ray. I think, I think that's definitely true. So, All right. Thanks, thanks very for much. Me. Yes. Yep. Take care. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube wrote a book based on the lead guitarist of ACDC's preference for short pants, What's the Matter with Angus? Just producer Mary Wilson's one-woman show lashing out at anyone telling her to calm down, it'll be okay, is now being mounted. It's What's the Matter with Anxious? Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast's critique of free-form poetry. Check it out. What's the Matter with Stanzas? Andy Bowers, Chief Content Officer of the Panoply Network. He has a scathing expose of Chinese charismatic megafauna. What's the matter with pandas? The gist, noting that Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, has a new book out. Its official title, Ultime Conversazione, or Final Conversations. But we know the real title, What's the Matter with Francis? Umpru depru dupru, I will see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.